0: Hi, folks out there. If you are interested in starting a company or you are a developer and really working on your next product, this podcast interview is for you. Today we have
1: Avi with us. Hey, Avi, who are you and what do you do? Hi, Martin. This is Avi Kavale. I am a co-founder and CEO of Shippable. We are a continuous delivery pipeline company for containers. Great. When did you start this company and what did you do before? Shippable, the genesis was around uh, late 2012 of like physically incorporated and everything in 2013, early 2013 in February. It's been about three and a half years so far. Before that, I worked at Microsoft and uh, briefly at Amazon, and I was there at Amazon for over 11 plus years, worked on Xbox, Office 365, Azure, and Kinect, the Xbox Live product. Okay. How do you go from gaming to shipping code? I mean, as uh, Andreessen says it, like software is eating the world and and pretty much everything is software. And even though we were at gaming side of the company, that's what the consumers saw. But behind it, it was all pure software technology. And uh, while I was doing that, uh, I was managing about roughly 150 plus organization across three different countries, China, India, and US. And at the end of Kinect, when I was going to my review process with my boss, I realized that over 50% of my entire organization spent their time on non-feature work. I mean, they were doing all sorts of plumbing, deployment code, autopilot code, all sorts of things. And that's kind of, if you look at it, we worked on Kinect for two years, 150 plus people, that's almost 150 person years being wasted on things that should have been actually baked into the platform. And that's basically what our motivation was. And we said, hey, every single group inside Microsoft is doing this. And imagine every single company in the world. What this should be is more of available as a platform where developers are using it to build features as opposed to kind of building the plumbing work for deploying the features that they build. Yeah. And that's, that's basically what Shippable was. Cool. And Avi, what was the next step? So you left the company and then what happened? I left the company and and I had never done a startup. Biggest thing was I left it in a very impulsive way because I just was so excited that this is a problem that I could go solve. <laughs> and I think for about three weeks, I was kind of, I mean, I left in late 2011 saying that I want to go do this company and I meandered around for about three, four weeks and I realized that I just didn't have the skills to do this at all, as especially founding a company, and let alone do it alone. I mean, that's the biggest mistake I did was, I said, I'm gonna do this alone. And and then I said, okay, fine, I'm gonna go, I, I kind of parked my idea a little bit, and I said, okay, let me go work on some modern technology, and I started working on a company which was working with Cloud Foundry. And I learned all about how startups work, how actually this thing goes on. And and that's basically, I kind of trained myself on the job for about 10 months, uh, always knowing that I will eventually get back to this idea that I was going to go do a company about. And how did Cloud Foundry prepare you for the entrepreneurial route? I think, I think the biggest thing that happened was at Microsoft, being in kind of like somewhat of a leadership role, you don't realize how easy it is. To get meetings, and so you lose the hustle of your life, and and it, things happen very easily because of the background and the brand that Microsoft has. When you start trying to do it on your own as a company, it's impossible. I mean, you have to really, really hustle to get these meetings and get these people to help you out. And and what Cloud Found this startup that was working on Cloud Foundry did was kind of make me get used to that kind of a more as opposed to sending an email to a company and say hey I want to talk to you for half an hour and I would get that meeting set up because of just the fact that I was at Microsoft
0: cool so once you've acquired some kind of knowledge from cloud foundry what did you work on then and did you find a co-founder
1: yeah i mean that was the other thing i did was i realized what my limitations were and then i started finding folks who would counterbalance the limitations that i had one was i was purely a techie person i needed somebody who has a little bit more of a business background we are still a very technical company so they need to be still technical but they need to have more business exposure than i did the second thing was even the temperament right i mean i i kind of think in big vision kind of goal-setting views Whereas you also need to have someone who brings you back to the ground and get some execution plan to get towards that big goal that you have. And so I think Manisha was kind of my obvious choice. I convinced her that she should quit Microsoft and, and do this. And uh, she quit Microsoft in late 2012 when we started Shippable in 2013 in February.
0: Did you know Manisha before? And why do you think she
1: qualified for a co-founder role? She had uh, worked with me at Microsoft back when I was with Office 365, and that's where I had interacted with her. She was part of a team that we, uh, my team actually worked with, and uh, there were two things. One was that she was super, super smart, and I knew that with all my interaction at Microsoft Uh, The second thing was uh, she was very, very practical in how she thought about things. And I was kind of the big vision and she was the very practical person. And I thought that that's the right mix that I needed. And of course, she had an MBA degree from Berkeley, which made it even more easier for me to say that she has to be the person who is the co-founder.
0: Great. So now you've assembled the two of you and starting out building on the product version, I guess. So what was the next step then? So did you work on the product or did you try to acquire some kind of beta
1: customers or did you already talk to investors? How was it like? So I think, I think we kind of did a few things. I mean, one thing that she kind of said is we got to have some kind of a framework of how we are going to go about doing this. I mean, I wasn't too keen on having these big MBA-like frameworks, but I wanted something that of a structure. So what we did is we started looking at accelerators and we filled out their application forms. And and we didn't want to apply to any accelerator. We just wanted to fill out the application form because some of these accelerator application forms really, really make you think about what your business is. And that's what happened. So we started off with Y Combinator and we filled out their whole application form. And then uh, we also accidentally got in touch with a few folks from Techstars. And this was due to some random events that happened. And then we, I mean, I would say we got really lucky meeting the uh, managing director of Techstars. And then we ended up taking Techstars as uh, an accelerator. And by that time, we had kind of built a prototype just to prove the technology can be done. Mm-hmm. And we knew that the customer problem existed, but we hadn't done any formal customer development and those kind of things. And Techstars, when we went through the program, they had a lot more structure to how you go about doing it and helped quite a bit in terms of how we did the rest of the company.
0: Okay. And how did you go about the customer development once you've been into this Techstar program or afterwards?
1: I mean, it was hard for us to accept that customer development was very critical.
0: (laughs) Especially as a techie, right?
1: (laughs) Yes. I mean, we thought we knew more. And, and actually, in retrospect, if I go and look back, that was probably the best thing that we ever did. And Techstars, I mean, Andy Sack, who was the managing director of Techstars Seattle at that time, he almost had a stick for us to say, you've got to go do customer development. The easy thing for us was that finding developers in Seattle was not very difficult. And so what we used to do was we used to go out uh, in downtown Seattle where Amazon was. Uh, there are all kinds of food trucks where people are standing in line for food during lunch. And we would just ask them, saying, hey, I'll buy you a soda if you answer a few questions. And and they were all techie. And so we could easily get 50, 70 interviews a day done in relatively like an hour and a half of a time, which was kind of unfair for the rest of the companies in Techstars because our customer base was a developer and we could find them so easily. And what did you ask them? So I think Andy's uh, guidance on customer development was you can never tell them what you are building. And you have to somehow ask them questions which don't tell them what you're building. And if they don't answer the core fundamental value proposition that your product does as their main problem, then your product will not actually sell. I mean, that was kind of the philosophy. So all of our questions was all about behavioral. What do you guys do on a daily basis? What was the one thing that you would want to do less? So it's more of open-ended trying to drag out what they really are doing and trying to see whether our value propositions actually stick in terms of what the pain point or what we are really trying to solve with our product.
0: Okay, cool. Avi, let's talk a little bit more about your company, Shipper. Can you briefly explain how the business model is working? So you briefly touched on this. So what are the customer segments? How are you
1: making money and what type of value proposition are you offering those people? So I think the basic idea is that Our product is a freemium model. So it's like so as like pretty much everything that's done in these days. So you have a basic value proposition which solves some problems for maybe an individual or a small team, like three or four people. And then the moment they grow beyond that, then you need to start buying in order to actually get them to start becoming a paid customer. I mean, that's basically the GitHub model. That's basically pretty much a lot of these online services model. Mm -hmm. And that's our basic fundamental, what we call as demand generation. And then with that, what happens is you don't have to do traditional enterprise sales. So you get a lot of people getting ground up and then eventually they'll get to some size. At that point, they become a sales qualified lead to us and we kind of sell them a more of an enterprisey kind of product on top of it. I mean, so that's basically the evolution. So you come in as freemium, you become a paid SaaS customer and eventually you will end up buying it for your department or maybe for your organization within your enterprise. I mean, that's kind of how the business model works. Mm-hmm.
0: And what makes Shippable unique in the marketplace? Because, I mean, you need to think, I guess uh, your co-founder as well, because she is having an MBA. What are the competitive advantage over your uh, competitors? I think the
1: most important thing is it's about efficiency, right? It's like, if you really look at it, in today's world, every single company has to out-innovate the competition. I mean, that's basically the only way you can actually survive. Uh, Otherwise, your features are going to get copied very, very quickly, and, and you lose out on the differentiation. So... That's a platform that every single company that's out there needs, right? I mean, if you kind of look at any mobile app kind of a company or anything, they have to constantly keep adding features that makes them more valuable and have more unique features than their competition. So we are a very interesting product, right? I mean, our product actually helps other customers to do this. So what we do is we use the same platform to build Shippable. So what we are doing is we are helping engineering organizations to become more efficient In other words, we call it ship code faster, kind of qualifying it a little bit more. It's ship quality code faster and repeatably. And that's basically it's continuous innovation. And that's what our product does. Hence, and the best thing for us is we are the number one customer for this product because we are trying to outrun everybody. So if you go and look at the last three months, we have added over 25 different features that none of our competition has even added, even less than five. So I mean, that's basically what makes our product more complete. And we are constantly innovating, using our own platform to kind of help other customers innovate faster on their whatever product that they're working on. So that, I mean, that's basically the uniqueness. So it's a, it's a continuously evolving platform that helps developers become more efficient to build software.
0: Okay, cool. Over this four to five years, what have been the major learnings and mistakes that you have seen or done yourself, uh, which you can share with our people interested in starting their own company?
1: I think some of the mistakes are like very, very specific to our business. I mean, our customer base, are developers. So a lot of mistakes that we did around that was not listening to developers closely enough. And so they were asking for something and we were trying to build something else. So that was one mistake that we did 12 to 18 months ago. And in the last six months, we have been super focused on our developers and our customers. And that has really changed how we actually are perceived by our customers. I mean, that's one thing that you never want to do is alienate your customer base. Even though you might think this is the right way to do it, you have to always have your pulse on your customer base. That's one thing that we did about 12 months ago, the wrong thing we did, and we have Since then, we have course corrected and we have become a completely customer-centric company at this point of time.
0: Was there a key event where you said for yourself,
1: oh, wow, we are really missing a point here. We need to change. I think what happened was two things. One was that we ended up opening up our customer support queue completely to the public. It was a decision because internally I had to change the culture of the company And what ended up happening is the moment we opened up all the kind of airing your dirty laundry out first. I think that's the first thing that we did. And that was a very, very risky thing to do because it pretty much told our competition what the problems we had was. Mm -hmm. And so the moment that happened, a whole bunch of customers started actually commenting, cross commenting on it because now everything was open and that internally changed our entire team's mindset. So that was a turning point that basically said, I mean, I know everybody has dirty laundry, but we want to keep them as clean as possible, as quickly as possible. So suddenly everything became customer centric as opposed to, hey, we will address it when we get some time. I mean, that attitude changed. I mean, that's basically what happened inside the company. Did you use a tool for this? I mean, we use GitHub and we are a developer platform. So it was very easy. We just opened up, we made our support repository private. I mean, it was private, we made it public. And that's basically what it did.
0: What other things did go well or did not go well, which you can share?
1: There were a few other things, right? I think hiring is very, very important. And sometimes I think you need to hire for attitude as opposed to aptitude. Mm-hmm. And most startups end up making this mistake where they hire for aptitude as opposed to attitude. And when you're this small, like when you're like 5%, 7%, 10% company, if one or two people don't fit, it really causes a lot of problems within the company. I mean, that's the other mistake that we did where we got carried away by people's aptitude as opposed to their attitude and whether the culture and the fit is going to be right. So I truly believe that in the initial part of your company, you should be super, super focused on building a cohesive team, even if it is not the best superstar team that you have you probably want to have a team that really works as a team as opposed to an individual excellence and that that was a couple of other mistakes that we made since then we have course corrected that and that's the hard part is uh, letting go of some of the early early employees that we had hired because they were just not the right fit was I mean it's kind of like my board once told me that if you don't start being a CEO then we'll start finding a CEO so I mean I think that was kind of the message that to say you this is part of being a ceo that you have to make these hard decisions yeah that was a wake-up call for us which kind of rejiggled the company into the right direction so
0: great also a good example of how the board can also help and advise the founders
1: which is great i mean this is the other thing from a first-time entrepreneur right this was the first company i ever created and even for anisha we both were completely novices at this you need to understand And I think for whoever is trying to do this, right, they need to understand that there will be highs and there will be lows. And there's no company out there that hasn't gone through that ebb and flow. And you have to be completely okay with that. And, And that's something that people always remember the great home runs that you hit, but they don't understand that there's a whole bunch of failures also internally happening. So that's normal part and parcel. And that's where board can help you. Because they have seen hundreds of companies go through this. And so you have to use your board quite a bit as opposed to just try to do these things in isolation.
0: Mm -hmm. You said very nicely that you need to hire in the beginning for attitude and less for skills and aptitude and so on and so forth. I mean, the CV and job testings for testing people for skills are very well defined. How would you test for
1: attitude? I think what you do is I do this special thing called case-based interviews, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't ask people how to do things. I ask them why they do what they do, right? I mean, it's very easy. If I ask you, sort these numbers in the fastest way, everybody will tell you how to do it. Very few people can answer why one technique is faster than the other technique. And so it's kind of like my personal favorite of kind of saying is I don't really care if people tell me what to use when we need it. What I really need is people to tell me when not to use a particular technology. And so when you do case-based interviews, you start seeing that whole, whether the candidate does pros and cons, whether they are kind of looking at it more holistically, are they kind of getting carried away by one single piece of information? So that gives you more of a well-rounded approach of what the candidate is doing, as opposed to just asking them a few technical questions and seeing how deep do they know the syntax or how deep do they know sorting algorithms. I mean, that's, that can be all found on Google today. You don't really need to know all those stuff. What you can't find on Google is, when do you use Node.js as opposed to using Go or vice versa? I mean, that is a much harder question to answer than just saying, hey, we should use Go. So I think that's the kind of questions you want to ask more as opposed to just asking very tactical, problem-based questions.
0: Mm-hmm. And Avi, if you look back from today to like five years ago, what would you have liked to know uh, beforehand, before you started the company, which would have helped you to become even better?
1: Ah, uh, that's a hard question. So what would I like to know? What would I, what information would I have to have five years ago? I think what I would have done a lot more was, it's basically this. I mean, it's a very hard question to ask because everything happened for a reason. And, and it's all about how do you react to the things that happened as opposed to trying to control things not to let it happen. So I don't think I have anything that would have changed my game. I, I like the journey I went through and it made me who I am today. So I don't think I would change too much. So. And how did you change over the, those five years? I have a lot of respect for people who have built companies. And I mean, if you had asked me five years ago, what is the role of a CEO, I would have probably not been able to answer. And I think just having empathy towards the different roles and the different skill sets that people bring to the table is something that. I mean, I was too much of an engineer. I only valued engineering skills and I kind of discriminated on the rest of the skills that people <laughs> had. And so I think being a CEO for the last three years, trying to create a company from scratch, I have a lot of empathy for pretty much every single skill set and job role that's out there and, and people who actually do that really, really well. I mean, it's, you need every single aspect of it like from people who can do content writing to people who can actually code to actually market. I mean, you need to have a well-rounded team. and, And I have developed a lot of empathy towards the rest of the skills that people have. Great. Avi, thank you so much for sharing your insights. Oh, you're very welcome. I hope it was useful and it'll be useful for some folks who want to listen to this.